Kara, how excited are you for the episode one of our new podcast? Oh my gosh, I am the literal most excited. On a scale from one to ten. Oh, I'm I'm an eleven point nine four. So are you ready to do this? I'm so ready. Are you, you ready? ready? To put this out in the world. I'm ready. Are you ready? No going back. I'm asking you. Are you ready? I'm so ready. I'm so ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. Hey everyone, I'm Kara. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to the Kara and Caleb Show. When it comes to life, we believe it is so important to ask the right questions, but also to learn how to live in the tension and the uncertainty of those questions. Yes, when we learn to live in the tension of unanswered questions, we become more resilient, more radiant, and more human. On this podcast, we explore the questions that have shaped and defined the lives of our guests. And then we dive deep into the beauty and the transformational process that occurs as we wait for answers that may or may not come as we expected. So join us as we explore what's possible when we are able to rest in the tension and live the questions of our lives right now. All right. Welcome to the first episode of the Kara and Caleb show. I'm st- I think I'm still coming to grips with uh, your name coming first. <laughs> Get over it already. It's going to, it's, it's good. I feel like we're going to have like live counseling sessions I, on the podcast. I was kind of thinking that maybe you should switch your Caleb with a C to Caleb with a K. <laughs> oh, do I, do you want me to take your last name? After yes, you please. Yes, please. Um, which I'm not opposed to, but I am so excited that we're finally doing this. I feel like this has been in our hearts for some time now. Yeah, we've been talking about it for a long we time. We have, and it's finally coming to fruition. I know, it's amazing. So I'm really excited about it. And I think for both of us, um, we have shared similar paths with really understanding that while the world is out there and the world is full of answers that like for us and for our own journeys that I would say has, that has led us to each other, Mm. but also just into a greater um, understanding and a greater like just experience of life Mm. has come as a result of answering and sitting and asking, sitting in and answering life defining questions. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think our heartbeat with this podcast, um, as we'll continually share, I think is just with the world that's full of answers and people giving us answers and telling us what to do um, and what not to do, turn left, go right up, down, jump higher, whatever it might be. Uh, This podcast and the heartbeat of this podcast, uh, I know for me, it's really empowering people and opening people up to asking the right questions so that they can ask these questions for themselves. And so that that question can catapult them into that liminal space, that season of answering those questions Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and maybe the answers come or they don't come or maybe they come in a way that we didn't expect them or maybe more questions come or maybe more questions come but that's where the magic happens right and then the 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 experience of it is is you find the answer for yourself Mm. which is drastically different than somebody telling you the answer yeah i think the beauty of asking questions too is that the more questions you ask, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. That's <laughs> and, as, as, and that's a mark of wisdom. Yeah. And as terrifying as that is, it's also such an expansion. I'm mm. literally sitting over here smelling my expanding body oil, <laughs> my essential oils. Blood. That's, some too. that's expanding. But just this idea that when we, when we're willing to dive into the questions, I almost visualize it as like diving into the water. Mm. You know this, but so much of my journey, um, was, was a, impacted by Richard Rohr's book, breathing underwater. And I think that's kind of what I visualize when I think of asking these questions of ourselves and of other people is that we're, we're taking a dive into the water and it's expansive and unknown and it's territory that 
can be terrifying, but it's where, it's where all the joy is found too. Mm. And the more we expand, the more we have capacity to feel, to empathize, to relate to one another, to connect to one another, to have more compassion in the world. So I think asking these questions of ourselves and then of other people is it's a key is a key to freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what we're going to do in this first episode is we're actually going to talk about the defining questions that have really defined our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, I just want to put a little disclaimer out there. We live in the heart of West Hollywood and we, um, from time to time get ambulances and uh-huh. a lot of loud sirens and helicopters flying over us and, yeah. um, just the people that we love, but they're just really loud sometimes. Uh, and so we apologize in advance if there are any sirens or any uh, noises that we just don't have any control over. No wild animals, just wild cars. <laughs> yeah, just a lot of Ferraris and Lamborghinis. It's true. That are loud. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Not hating on that, though, because I would love to have one one day. One day. Um, so you want to yeah. go first? Y- sure. What was- My name is first, so I should probably yeah, go first. You should. I, gosh, when, when I think about the life defining questions of my life, there are actually a lot that have come in different seasons and different times, but I think there's two specifically that stand out to me. Um, the first one is so simple. It's so stinking simple. It is the question, do you know that you have permission to be sad? Mm. And I, I don't think you've ever told me this. Yeah. So Well, I think it's one of those, it's one of the base questions that has defined a lot of ground or has set a lot of groundwork for other questions to come and for me to be able to answer them. So the context of this is I, um, I was hosting a retreat actually up in Carmel and I was with a group of 20 women and we did, uh, these things called listening circles. Caleb, you know what a listening circle is, but for those of you listening who don't, it's quite intimidating. Actually, you sit uh, in a group of people, generally like four to five people, and you're given a time. And for this specific listening circle, we were given 20 minutes each to just talk. And the idea of a listening circle is that the other members of the circle are literally just holding space for you. They're not responding. They're not offering, um, you know, so often as we, as we talk with people, we're like, mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. And we offer this like verbal affirmation feedback, but the idea with the listening circle is that it's just space for you to be present with other humans and process whatever's going on <clears throat> internally. And the magic of 20 minutes is that after the first five, I mean, I'm verbal, I'm an extrovert. I could talk for five minutes easily after five minutes, just you're talking about your life, what you're thinking about. After 10 minutes, you start to tap into some territory in your heart that maybe you didn't even know was there. And you start talking about things that are like deeper in there. It's kind of like a little bit of a a heart excavation. And by minute 15, you don't even know what's coming out of you. Right. So it's just like really getting into the grit. And I was in this circle and I'm processing all this stuff. And at about minute 10, I started to get emotional And I'm one of those people that like, I can't talk when I cry. Like my words won't come out. I go, (gasps) you have an ugly cry. Well, it's not even that it's ugly. Maybe it's ugly. It's Mm -hmm. not even that it's ugly. It's that like, I can't get enough oxygen to get words out. I get it. So I, I, I start crying, but then I keep stopping my cry so that I can get my words out. And I kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for crying like that. And at the end, um, after the entire completion of the circle, we were, we went to dinner and one of the girls in my group pulled me aside 
And she just, she's like the most tender, nurturing, motherly type woman. And she just held on to me and she gave me a hug and she held on to me and she goes, do you know that you have permission to be sad? Mm. And no one, honestly, I was 30 at that point. No one in my life had ever said that to me. And again, it's not a blame thing, but I, I grew up in a household where there was a lot of messaging of like, don't be sad. Don't be upset. Don't be angry. And as a seven uh, on the Enneagram, my tendency is to run away from pain. So I had never felt like I had been given permission to actually feel what I needed to feel. Yeah. As a seven though, what is the main coping mechanism to like run away from pain? What does that look like? Uh, well, it can look like a lot of things. So it's it's not sitting still, not sitting still. So we fill. So Mm -hmm. the, the sin of a seven is sin quotes, um, is gluttony. So we'll just like fill ourselves with experiences or food or substance or anything to avoid, avoid, right. To avoid like the empty, sad feeling. And so when she, she asked me that question, I sat there and I, in her arms, just like bawled for five minutes, just crying. And it was, it was really healing for me just to have this nurturing motherly type friend woman who, yeah, offered me this space to, to give, um, yeah, to give me permission to feel all of my feelings, not just yeah. sad, but like the expansiveness of everything. Because I think, again, going back to being a seven, we are we are the life of the party. We are mm-hmm. so fun. We're eternally optimistic. Like I will always find the silver lining in everything. But for me, um, it, I yeah, I did have this tendency to run away from the sad or just to be like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. And and you in relationship with me probably see that. Like mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I'll just glass over, gloss over things and be like, it's okay. But I think that was the first time. Yeah. That someone had actually laid that groundwork to just give me permission. So fast forward. Hold on. I have a question. Whenever yeah. you were uh, in that, in that place, were you, and maybe when you started to learn how to be sad and mm-hmm. allow yourself to feel your emotions, mm-hmm. A lot of times people come to me like, I'm so afraid. Mm. And Brene Brown talks about this a lot, but I'm so afraid that if I allow myself to feel sad or mm. go into these emotions they'll that are uncomfortable, me. they'll swallow me. Yeah. Yeah. Was that, was that something you had to work through? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I still have to work through mm-hmm. that sometimes. I think, um, I think that <laughs> there's that quote that says the only way out is through. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I could have said that cognitively all of my twenties, right? Like I, I think I knew I wouldn't have said, I'm not allowed to be sad in my twenties, but to actually physically embody the experience of being sad and sitting in it didn't happen till later because I was so scared of being swallowed. And even now I can feel in myself being like, oh my gosh, if I, if I let myself go down this road, will I get stuck there? Yeah. Um, but I think that's kind of the beauty of understanding that emotion is, is just this wild, expansive sphere yeah, of but all things. Even understanding just the emotion, like emotion. Yeah. And when it's in motion, yeah. you're not, it's going to move through it you. Move. It will move because mm-hmm. it was made to move. And mm-hmm. so there's just this process of like, yeah. you're going to have to allow yourself to feel, to get over the fear of you yeah. being swallowed by yeah. it. Yeah, And I think there's the reality that our greatest joy is really only known in contrast to our greatest sorrow. So Mm. the more capacity we have to feel sadness, the more capacity we actually have to feel joy. It's like we can't selectively numb emotions mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. Brene says. Yeah. 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 Did you, I know this, but for the context of this, um, 
what role did playing or did growing up in a spiritual family, Christian mm. family, yeah. um, correlate into not being able to feel those yeah. uncomfortable emotions? <laughs> well, I mean, every family is different and the way that faith plays out in every family is different. But I think for me, we went through a pretty traumatic, uh, life event in my family when I was 13 and that just created emotional chaos in our family. And I'm the middle of five kids. And I also am the first girl and I also am a seven. And I also was, <laughs> I was also the good, stubborn, stubborn. <laughs> yes. Always stubborn, but I was kind of the good one. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I was always the one who I had my, my rebellious year at age 13 and, and the extent of my rebellion was shoplifting, which is hilarious <laughs> in hindsight. But, um, I, I think that there was a lot of messaging of, I want to be so gentle with the way I say this, but that we don't need to be sad because God has already fixed yeah. all the problems, right? Mm -hmm. Or Jesus has, uh, paid the price, paid the price. So therefore we don't have to feel the sadness. Yeah. And in truth, that's so anti-gospel. Like Jesus sat in the midst of pain, mm -hmm. even when he had capacity, like you think of the story of Lazarus, he raising yeah. from the dead. For yeah. those of you who don't know the story, uh, Jesus's friend Lazarus dies and he has capacity to raise him from the dead, but and instead he, he, he sits there and he cries with the women who yeah. lost him and then he raises him from the dead. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I, I, I feel like being raised in a, in a home where number one emotion just wasn't yeah. prioritized. It wasn't seen as um, like a valuable thing. And then two, the faith aspects that kind of the messaging, I, yeah. I don't even want to say the faith. I want to say that the messaging of the yeah. faith, uh, was kind of tricky for, <clears throat> yeah, me give, giving I'm the same now, and you know that. It's yeah. just like, no, it, for me, it was like, oh, I'm feeling all these uncomfortable emotions, right. but, uh, you know, have more faith. Right. Have, more, have faith. more faith. Your faith needs to be used to get over them mm. instead of realizing that, no, faith is going to be used to embrace them, mm -hmm. accept them, mm -hmm. and move through them. Yeah. And so that was a big turn for me. Yeah. And that took me a long time. I think a lot of people say, like, was it the narrative, the cultural narrative around masculinity that made you become so avoidant of your emotions, mm -hmm. you know, or emotionally unaware? Mm -hmm. Like, no, I don't think it was a culture of masculinity as much as it was a culture of the church. Yeah. The evangelist the evangelical church, um, charismatic Christian that I grew up in. Yeah. And maybe it's even the culture of masculinity within the church. Like I think yeah. even when I think back on some of the movements of the church around masculinity, mm -hmm. some of that is kind of toxic mm -hmm. and, and shaming. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's my first question. You, yeah. You feel good about that? I answer? do. I like it. Thanks. I like it. It's something that I have to remind myself of. Yeah. Cause it, it's so easy to think like I'm feeling sad right now. What's wrong with me? Yeah. Instead of like Rumi, you know, like invite the sadness invite in. Invite the sadness. Yeah. Invite the sadness in, become mm -hmm. best friends with it and just teach it or allow it to teach you what it needs to teach you. Yeah. And I th it's just, I, I, I keep coming back to this place of just radical acceptance. Yeah. Because when I accept the sadness or when I accept the loneliness, it's like, whoa, I'm no longer afraid of it. Right. There's no resistance there. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it takes a lot of paradigm shift. Yeah. We were, um, we, I had a group of girlfriends over to do like a writing exercise the other night and we were reading a poem by Cleo Wade, mm -hmm. who is my favorite. She's so good. And she writes about, um, befriending your shame. Mm -hmm. And it was a really, I, I ended up writing like a whole 
piece about it, but just this idea that we so often with our sadness or our shame or any, anything negative, we want to push it away, push it away. But what does it look like to actually befriend Mm -hmm. those things and and be gentle with them? Yeah. I remember when I wrote a post on Instagram about like how I kind of like humanized, Mm -hmm. uh, my loneliness yeah, and how much that related to people. Yeah. And I was just like, like maybe me trying to resist you is what makes me feel so broken exactly, and feel so lonely. What if you are the friend that I've been looking for Mm. and I invite you in and I see you as this first off, like this unwanted visitor. But then when I allow you into my home, I see that you're here to show me something. Yeah. Well, all of those, all of those things, shame and sadness and all of them have, have messages for us. Mm -hmm. They're trying to tell us something. And if we just slam the door in their face, they're just going to come back harder and harder trying to get this message across to us. It's like little monsters knocking yeah. at your door. Um, yeah, that's really good. What was the next question? Okay, this is so, my favorite one. Uh, yeah, this one's good. I remember when you told me this question, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so the context of this question, to give it some backstory, is that I was the girl at 21 who said out loud to my friends, mm-hmm. I'm going to get married later in life, like 25. And I was so convinced, Caleb, I was so convinced that 25 was late. late like old maid status. And I went to a very conservative school in the Midwest where girls were getting married at like by 1920, 21 was, you know, pushing the edge. But I was like later in life, like 25. And if you had told me at 21 that at 30, I would be single, I would have freaked out. I remember, I have a vivid memory of sitting with Michelle Mm -hmm. being like, it's fine. Cause I, I, this was at age 25. I wasn't married yet, obviously. And I sat with Michelle, my best friend. And I said, it's fine. I think like if I get married by 27 or 28, that's perfect. So fast forward, uh, to last year I'm 34 at that point, I'm now 35, but at that point I'm 34 and I am so single. <laughs> I, um, I've just been through this whole journey of singleness, right? Like really evaluating. Cause I think again, going back to faith, there's a lot of messaging. There was a lot of messaging for me around finding your person is, is kind of a conclusion, yeah. right? It's like an answer. I remember to when I got asked to speak several years ago when yeah. I was in Buffalo, I got asked to speak at a Christian event Yeah. and they didn't let me to do it because I wasn't married yet. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are behind in life. I was like, Whoa. But that feeling of being behind in life, right? And, um, that feeling of like intense, intense longing and just dissatisfaction. And again, I'm, I'm telling this story in hindsight, but there were so many nights of, oh, just like deep, deep pain, deep, deep longing for meeting this human that I believed existed to partner my life with. And I would, (laughs) I would literally like sit in my loft and like binge on popcorn and wine, just so upset thinking that like the wine and the popcorn would, would fill some kind of void. Right. Or again, maybe just not wanting to be sad. So avoiding that, that deep pain by stuffing it down or whatever it was. So anyways, fast forward 34, I'm in Palm Springs And this woman, I was at a retreat and this woman was speaking about being single in her thirties and she was probably 37 and, um, she was a Christian and she was, uh, just telling this whole story in reference to, um, she was relating her singleness to being in a holding pattern, right? Like if you're in a plane and you're flying around the airport and you're not landing yet, there's a reason you're not landing on the ground. Mm. So maybe you're in some kind of holding pattern and 
she, she said a lot of beautiful things, but one of the things that she said, which is my second question is if God, um, and, and she would say God, but other people might say the universe or something outside of themselves. If God never gives you the very thing that you long for the most, will you still believe that he's good? And I was like, no, like (laughs) absolutely no, because if God is good and I don't get this thing that my heart longs for more than anything. Absolutely. He cannot be good. Like it, it, in my mind was an equation. Like if I don't get this thing there, therefore he's not good. So I was angry and I went back to my, um, my hotel room and I laid on my floor and for an hour, I just sat there and prayed and meditated. And I kind of went through this guided meditation around my past. And I realized that if you had told me at 21, I would be single at 30. I would have had a breakdown. But at 30, I was so happy. Like my life was great. Everything was good. I was having a great time. And if at 30, you would have told me at, that at 34, I would still be single. I would have freaked out. I would have had a panic attack. And, and I kind of went through this visualization of realizing that in hindsight, that my life did not look at all how I wanted or expected it to look but it was really good, mm-hmm. right? Like my life at 34 was so, so good. So fast forward, if we take that same kind of thinking into the future, if at 44, I'm still single and I don't have this theoretical thing that I think I, I need to feel satisfied, I'll probably still be good. Yeah. I'll probably still be thriving. And that doesn't, that doesn't dissipate the longing, but it did give me this clarity of like, Oh, absolutely. I could believe that God is good. Yeah. Like it, it actually doesn't come down to getting the thing that I want in a, in a reference of time. It comes down to me believing that. And and again, there's so much in this, but that everything that I have or everything that I need is in the here and now, like Mm -hmm. this is the only moment I have this present moment. And it is so good. And so I think that's the second life defining question because it, it's not really about singleness at all, right? It's about it's good. trusting the timing of our lives. Our friend Allie always says, or at, at her wedding in her vows, she said, these things take exactly as much time as they take. Yeah. And just this beautiful idea that we all, we are all in a place of longing. Like yeah. we all have things that we are hungry for and long for and desire. And we don't have to eradicate those longings. Mm-hmm. I think they're beautiful and they pull us into the questions. Yeah. They pull us into the questions and they pull us yeah, into our, into ourselves. And, um, and this is like a longer answer that we will get into, I'm sure in future episodes. But the truth is I thought that finding you would bring some sort of satisfaction or like I'd be happy. Right. Mm-hmm. But, fulfillment. but I, fulfillment. And then I answered that question that I was so happy on my own and oddly you ca- you came into the picture less than a month later yeah. and in meeting you i realized that i i was actually the thing i was looking for mm. the whole time like it wasn't you it was being okay with myself and choosing myself and that opened up the door for you to come into the picture and i think too it put a lot of less false expectations on you that you would come in and satisfy some piece of longing in my heart and granted, or that I would be a certain type of guy. Yeah, absolutely. Cause yeah. you're not, <laughs> you're not the type of guy that I thought yeah, I would yeah, end yeah, up yeah, with. Yeah. We can tell that story. I later. love all of that. Uh, um, I always often, when I hear that too, like, cause I can relate 
to the longing and this internal frustration. Yeah. Right? I, I often call it uh, holy, holy frustration. frustration. Yeah. Um, and that holy frustration just leads you into a deeper place of surrendering mm-hmm. um, and then letting go and then grieving what you thought you wanted or what you expected to happen. And then that produces another letting go, which creates more space for that, which is supposed to come into your life or right. designed to come into your life. Um, but that frustration and I, and I often, cause I'll get frustrated still, like when I look at life sometimes and I have to really do the work of staying in the present moment and just being here mm. and now. Um, but frustration for me, the way that I've seen it has always been the, 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 the symptom of a fear. Mm-hmm. So when I'm feeling that frustration mm-hmm. and that not longing, but more striving slash desperation, yeah. uh, which feels remarkably similar. Yeah. And that's why I like deploying self-awareness and um, having an emotional, like just an understanding of what you're feeling is so important to do that work and mindfulness. Yeah. But it's always a symptom of fear. And so then you can ask yourself the next question, which is, what am I so what afraid, I afraid of? of? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm afraid of, you know, maybe I'm going to be single the rest of my life and my parents are going to think differently or me. Or what are they going to say about me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it has nothing to do with you finding your person right now. Yeah. Let's deal with the fear yeah. that's actually presenting itself in this frustration so yeah. that you can actually remove and build resilience around that fear, change the narrative around that fear. And that's going to allow you to move forward or not, I don't want to say that use the word move forward, but step into a new level of confidence consciousness and awareness that's going to usher in things into your life that you've been waiting for. Absolutely. Right. And so I think those are, it's for me, it's just changing the narrative around like, and being mindful enough to catch the frustration and be like, okay, so if frustration's a, this desperation's a a symptom of fear, what am I afraid of now? Mm -hmm. And that's the question. That's a really, really powerful question. Well, and it's way easier for me to sit in a posture and be like, I just need to meet my person. I just need to meet my person. You don't have to do the work. Right. Then to look and say, what? why do I think I need that so badly? What, what will my life be like if I don't meet this person and to really face those fears? It's a lot easier to sit in this posture of like just thinking that something outside of you Mm. will satisfy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also like this question about like, if God never gives me the thing that I want, like, is it okay? And it it, it correlates so much to my own question. But before I go into that, I would say that early on in my journey, because I moved to a church, right? Like the context of a church when I left the NFL, like in Christianity and Jesus and all this language was really important to me. And it Mm. still is. I just have kind of a different understanding of it, but it was extremely important to me. And I can tell you from early on in that journey, there was one rule and nobody told me this. This was on me. Mm. Like this came up in my own heart. There was like one, I guess I would say rule that I abided by, that I lived by. And it was do not compromise the truth that God is good. Huh? But like, no matter what happens, if all hell breaks loose, God is still good. God is still good. Hmm. God is still good. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, but there was also some danger in it because what that did for me was, okay, God is good. All hell is breaking loose in my life and this isn't going as planned, so on and so forth, but God is good. God is good. I cannot compromise that truth. And what that did is I never realized that it never gave me the space to be angry at God, Mm, to get mad at God, right? Where it was like, okay, God, I clearly God's not the problem. It must be with me. And over time that made me feel so much more broken Mm -hmm. and the shame almost like exponentially increased in my life. Mm. But I do believe there is so much truth in saying like God is not, or God is good no matter what, but you know what, when shit does not go the way that you planned or you expected or unfold, or you're just like in the thick of it right now, Mm. like give yourself permission to get fucking angry 
at God. Mm. Like God can handle your anger. Yeah. It's okay. And I remember mowing the backyard of my pastor's home um, as an as an act of honor. I would do it every other Sunday. And I remember just like the Lord speaking to me and getting so mad mm. and stopping the lawnmower. And I'm in this backyard. I swear to God, Kara, I'm in this backyard in Fort Erie, Ontario, Canada, with my finger, my index finger pointing at the skies and yelling at God. Mm. Like you lied to me. You brought me out here. Yeah. Like, what did you do? I've wasted my life. How dare you? I'm supposed to believe that you're good. This is bullshit. You're a con artist mm. just going off. Yeah. And then I'm telling you that was so important for me because I did not know how much bitterness and unforgiveness and yeah. resentment that I was harboring towards God. And when I gave myself the space to be mad at God and realizing that God is like, yes, bring it on, let it all out. Because that unforgiveness toward God had nothing to do with God and everything to do with me. Right. It was keeping me stuck emotionally and spiritually, I would say. So as soon as I did that, it just like completely released so much in my life and my life really, it did move forward from that moment. Yeah. And I think, I think. Yeah. God is good. I'm not ever going to compromise that truth. The universe is always for us. The universe, God, God, they're for us more than we are for ourselves. They yeah. want to see us succeed more than we probably want to see ourselves succeed. Like the, the, the divine plans for our life are the most beautiful and the most majestic and fruitful and full of fulfillment and purpose and mm. abundance that we could ever imagine. Right. Like that's what we, that's what they have planned for us. Mm. Um, so God is good, but when things don't go out the way that you expected them to go out, let it out. Yeah. Don't hold on to that unforgiveness. Yeah. Don't hold on to that bitterness. Yeah. There's so much, I think there's so much fear in people getting angry at God. Right. They're, it's like yeah. a cosmic lightning bolt. Yeah. God can handle your angerness def- or your anger. Yeah. He definitely can. And he, I think he wants it too. He, he does. Like the honest, raw, yeah. vulnerable, yeah. open emotion. I think honestly, carry. truthfully, that was probably the greatest demonstration of an authentic prayer. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> in my life to that yeah. up to that point. Yeah. Like, oh, now I'm really talking to God. Yeah. And it was honest. Hey guys, Kara here. I hope you are loving today's episode. I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you that today's episode is brought to you by Connect Dinners. So when I moved to LA about seven years ago, I started a dinner party company with the intention of creating safe spaces for people to connect around the table. And I'm so pumped to tell you that Caleb and I have launched a new dinner series called Connect Dinners this year in 2020. Connect Dinners are invite only curated dinner parties for 20 strangers that happen in Los Angeles. They are beautiful farm to table family style meals along with delicious organic biodynamic wines from dry farm wines. And they are so much fun. We really believe that when we create spaces for connection, you're able to connect to yourself, connect to other people and ultimately connect to the greater whole, which allows you to live a more fulfilled life which we love. So if you're curious about Connect Dinners, just go to connectdinners.com to find out more information. Our next dinner is February 26th in LA and we would absolutely love to see you there. I have a couple of questions that have really marked and defined my life. Um, I wanted to ask you. Yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> Caleb, I, I'm, I just talked for a while about my questions. I'm curious what questions have shaped and defined your life. Yes, there are a couple. <laughs> I'm going to start with the smaller one, not smaller one, it was big, but, uh, you know, when I moved away from, or when I walked away from the NFL and I found that church on Twitter and I decided to leave the NFL and essentially become a glorified janitor. 
of a church, <laughs> sleeping on the basement floor of this church and not knowing anybody there really. And just knowing I'm walking for whatever reason in my heart, knowing that that's where I was supposed to be, that I needed to be there. And it was so like crazy that I don't know, like when you're des when you're truly desperate for change, it's like you will, you will go the distance, mm. whatever it costs. And I, I really do feel like I was at that point where I was like, yeah, like I will drive into Canada, walk into this church with not knowing really anybody saying, I need help. Can you help me? What were you desperate for when you say I was yeah. desperate? Uh, I remember waking up and just, and this is a question, actually, this is probably the starting question. I said, this, is this all there really is to life? Mm. Where like my entire life has been built upon this lie that if I can just make it to the NFL, you know, because for so long, the purpose and the plans that, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has for my life, honestly, was football in my head and my mm. heart. Wow. And that's almost like what was instilled in me and how I internalized so much of the messaging growing up and the prosperity gospel. And then I get to the NFL and I have a legit meltdown. I literally self-destruct and my life is just up in flames. It's a, just a chaotic mess. And I remember waking up and just being like, is this really all there is to life? Mm. And I remember thinking about like, I didn't just, the scripture that says, I didn't just come to give you life, but the abundance of life. And I said, I remember saying to myself, either I'm wrong and made a mistake or you're, this is just a full of shit and like I'm, I've been believing a lie. <sighs> My heart actually said, it's probably me. <laughs> I'm going to put, if I was a betting man, I would probably bet that something was awry <laughs> in me. Right. And so Your heart told you the truth. Yeah. I, I was just so full of frustration where it was just kind of like, this can't be it. There has to be more to life. And then that's what led me down this journey of mm. one night, like, Oh my God, I'm on Twitter and I find these tweets and they're talking in a way that really connected with my heart. And at this time I'm the most like least self-aware and emotionally aware human that you've ever met. Mm. Uh, so like there's no actual emotional maturity in me, but mm. for whatever reason, this pierced my heart in a way that I've never felt before. Did you think you were emotionally immature back then? I Truthfully, I didn't even have that language. Yeah. I didn't even know wow. what that was. Wow. I was the, I was so immature. It was not even funny. <laughs> so immature. Like I go back and it's like cringeworthy. Like, yeah. oh my God, poor Caleb. You just didn't know better. Yeah. And think yeah. that like, that could be me. That could have been me my rest of my entire life. Yeah. Like I could live at that state of mm -hmm. just like protecting what I thought was life and my ideas and my thoughts and just like, oh, it's, it's cringeworthy, but mm -hmm. I have compassion for that kid now. Yeah. Um, a little Caleb. Yeah. But I went to Canada and I remember like the going there and just like really for the first time in my life going into like therapy, mm. like hard therapy every single day almost. Uh, and I was so blessed because Pastor Ian, Ian McDonald, the, the pastor of this church who I owe so much to him and his family and I'll mm. forever be indebted to them and just so thankful for them. And he like kind of put me under his wing mm. and just mentored me. And I kind of like just followed him around and helped him with whatever needed to be helped with. And just like, just mm. glean wisdom from him. Like I was just a sponge and he would just, he was the most calm, cool, collected, collective, uh, like person that yeah. you've ever met, but just so full of wisdom. And it's interesting because over time I learned his story mm. where he was almost in bed for a year from massive depression, like wow. unable to work, unable to get out of bed. Like his life came crashing down. 
And out of that season of darkness, that dark night of the soul that really lasted a year came this new vision. Um, and he just had the capacity to hold so much compassion and empathy for people. And mm. he just kind of just was so, so, so incredibly patient with me. Mm. And I remember he was just asking me this over this one question all the time. And I was like, if that's true, Caleb, what does it say about you? Mm. And that question like marked me meaning like, I'm dealing with this fear of rejection. Like I'm going into this room and I think that people are like, I had such a fear of rejection. Like yeah. as soon as I'd walk into a room and people would look how cool my new shoes were or something, like yeah. I would just be so convinced that they were judging me. Wow. So convinced that them talking amongst each other after they look at me yeah. was about me. Just feeling like so watched. So, so watched. Like you don't belong. And just, yeah, I've never felt like I belonged up until just recently, really. Mm. And he's like, okay, Caleb, if that is true, if you're walking into a room and everybody's judging you and talking about you, what does it say about you? Mm. And then I'm like, what? And it took me time to drop into my heart and allow my heart to like kind of bring forth whatever that first response is. And it's like, well, it says I'm broken then. Yeah. Ah, okay. So if it says you're broken, that's the lie you believe. That's the identity piece. Mm. Let's go to work on that <laughs> identity because somewhere along the lines, somewhere along the way, you've been taught to believe that you're broken. Mm. Right. And now we need to change how you see yourself. Mm -hmm. So let's get to the root of that lie. Yeah. And then we would take that into therapy. And so then over time I was just able, okay, that's true. If this is true, what does it say about me? Mm -hmm. And that was such a big question because it allowed me to get to the root of my identity and how I truly saw myself. Mm -hmm. So that, and all the narratives and the stories that I was telling myself that just weren't true. Yeah. It's almost like a interesting like they say that pride is um, thinking of yourself too much yeah. or too less. It's like this interesting underbelly of pride, right? Like mm -hmm where you're, you're walking into a room and you're just assuming that people aren't accepting you. Yeah. It's really interesting. And it's just like my fear of connection, right? Because I was so afraid of actually connect. I, was, I had so much shame, especially from things that had happened to me in childhood and in high school and things that that fear is really self-protection that yeah. it's, it's yeah. ego at play to protect myself from actually getting too close to people because get history wounded. taught me that if I get close to people, I'll be wounded. Or if you see the real me and how broken and terrible I am, there's no way you would accept me for who yeah. I am. And so that fear of rejection and that narrative of rejection was actually self-protection. Right. Mm. And so over time, all of these different self-protection mechanisms, I learned how to not be so ashamed of them or mad at myself for having them, but seeing more so seeing them as like, wow, I love myself so much that I'm going to deploy all of these self-protective mechanisms mm. to keep me safe. Mm. Right. There's a better way of living life. Yeah. There's a higher way of living life. But I think so many times we have these self-protective mechanisms that we um, just deploy in our life, when we're, especially when we're being activated or triggered, yeah. that we get so angry at ourselves for them. Yeah. But I, I, for me, I had to change the narrative being like, whoa, I love myself so much. I'm going to yeah. go such a great length to protect myself. I think that's such a good point to make here is that so often when these like terrible things show up in us. They are self-protection yeah. and reframing them and understanding. That I love myself. Yeah. That I love myself or even, I mean, both of us have read, if you guys haven't read the body keeps the score, it's one of the most profound books on, on the way that our bodies protect us and yeah. store trauma and store historical things in our actual fascia. And just thinking of you as a little kid and the rejection or, or the pain that you experienced and the way that you're, yeah, your emotions and your body lined up to just protect you. Mm -hmm. And changing that narrative and I, I think is so empowering for people to see mm -hmm. it as 
Yeah, this is this is me. Yeah, it's not a flaw. And I don't have to get angry at myself for there's just a higher way of doing life. Yeah. There's just a better way of going about this. Yeah. It's really good. And so what does it say about you? I still use that question often. Mm. If that's the truth, okay, what does it say about you? Yeah. And it's just kind of like, you know, my journal entries now or whenever I sit down and write or Mm. when I'm processing thoughts, when you get angry at me for being so silent, you know? (laughs) That's (laughs) where did you go? Where are you where are you at? In your head? Yeah. Um, and then the next question, I don't get angry at I you, know. by the way. <laughs> but for me, uh, you know, as a four wing three, uh, that three in me, because of the way that I learned to receive love was through performance, right? Mm. Like I remember when I scored that touchdown and I heard, we love you so much because you scored the game winning touchdown. Right. Attaching oh, that love to yeah, performance. Attaching that love to performance. Now life became yeah. one big quest for achievement, you know? And that's why it was so hard for me to walk away from the NFL. It wasn't just walking away from the game. It was walking away from the very way that I learned to find love and validation and acceptance in this source. world. Yeah. It was the source. It was a lifeline. It was the blood in my veins or the oxygen in my lungs, you know? And so it wasn't just walking away from a game. It was so much more than that. And as a three for me, it, this this quest for more, more achievement, more success, do more, be more, achieve more, right? Because I was always looking for this moment where it was enough where I felt like, oh my gosh, like people love me. Like mm. I feel the love through the success, mm. right? But when I got to the NFL and I couldn't muster up that performance that led me to the achievement, that birth, that sense of significance and love and acceptance in my life, mm. I started to be like, whoa, like how do I find it now? Mm. But for so long after that, like my faith was a performance. Everything had turned into a performance. It was just a matter of willpower and a performance to mm. do more, to be more, to achieve more. But the thing is, it was never enough. Mm. And I would fluctuate from like, you know, reprimanding myself and congratulating myself because I was so deluded into thinking that I could actually save myself if I could just muster up this performance. Mm. And was the performance, was it like a search for validation? Search for significance. Yeah. Right. So yeah. like if I could, I'm, I, cause as a four, right. It's our, like, I do not want to live an insignificant life. Yeah. Like there's such a quest for significance in life. Enneagram right? language. Enneagram language, yeah. sorry. But like, even me, that's like the main, like, when is it enough that I feel so significant in this world? Right. Yeah. And that can lead you to doing so many, like a, you tie yourself out because it's just endless striving, mm. endless striving. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're constantly trying to do things in the world. And it's not about doing things in this world uh, or making contributions as much as it's actually looking for significance. Um, and I think that's what we, why we like identity politics, right? Because people are trying to find significance in life and they're so like, we have built an identity around being right because being right gives us level of significance. And we have completely undermined the truth of what it looks like in the gospel to build an identity around love. Mm. Right. And so I think there's just a quest for significance in this world. And that was me, but no matter what I did, no matter how far I went, right? Like it was never enough. And I remember our dear friend, Allie Fallon, uh, the founder of uh, find your voice. And, oh man, I hired her because she, what she does is she, uh, part of, part of her work and find your voice is she helps you create the narrative framework of your book. And so I hired her and I flew out to Nashville towards the end of my time in uh, Canada up about like five years in. And I, worked with her for an entire day, you know, and I could feel like the frustration brewing, like it's never enough. It's never enough. Mm. And I remember we spent the last part of the day, like the last four hours or five hours, like creating all these different note cards, Mm. essentially with my life story, the book that I wanted to write at the time. Yeah. And 
it's crazy because I'm like, oh, I'm six foot two and I'm like standing over all probably like 65, 75 note cards. And Allie could feel the tension in the room <laughs> because I pack a lot of feelings, mm. especially if <laughs> you guys are both for yeah, just standing just, in there with all the emotion. Right. And so I just remember looking at this and I start getting tears in my eyes because I'm looking at my life story and I start getting tears in my eyes. And Allie looks at me and she says, Kayla, what's wrong? And I said, Allie, it's not enough. Mm. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, it's not enough. Like I have to do more. Like the story is not enough. Mm. I'm like, I need to climb Mount Everest or something. Mm. Like I need to climb Mount Everest. Um, and then I can write this book, you know? And I was just like, it's not enough. It's not enough. And I remember the week after I sat down and had breakfast with my pastor, yeah. uh, Ian, um, and just my mentor in life. And I was telling him this and he was like, Caleb, do you see it? And I was like, what? He was like, it's never going to be enough until you believe that you're enough. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like hearing that's just so <laughs> simple, you know, but like, I was like, no, yeah. like, yeah, but no, because my entire life was like, tell me to climb Mount Everest yeah. and find the willpower and the perseverance and the grit to continue on at all costs. Like I've been trained for that. Right. But for me to enter into the depths of doing the work around the narrative, I'm not enough. Mm. It's not willpower as much as it's surrendering. Yeah. And you can't willpower your way into surrendering. This is a posture of your heart. This is inner work. And that's yeah. why it's so hard for us or so hard for me anyways. And I just remember being like, wait, what? And I sat with that for a long time and I'm not enough. And it created so much shame in my life thinking that I'm so just intrinsically flawed and broken. Like, why do I hate myself so much? Why do I just, why do I believe that I'm not enough? And then I started to realize over time that like, wow, it's, that's, it's really what shame does to you. Mm. Like shame, this, this not like I'm broken intrinsically wired wrong. There's something intrinsically wrong with me. I'm broken. It reduces us into believing that we're not enough. So we're going to spend all of our time looking outside of ourselves for the thing that we're looking uh, to fulfill ourselves or to find significance. But really the reality of the situation is, is it's, it's, it's in us. Yeah. Like we were looking for us. I'm looking for me. Right. Well, and when you think about any kind of feeling of not belonging, like if you don't believe that you're enough, when you no. walk into a room, you're always going to be looking Absolutely. for other people to validate you to feel safe. Yeah. I remember I was dating this person once and he, as a criticism, he said, you assume intimacy every time you walk into a room. And I took it as such a compliment because <laughs> I, I think it, it came at, at a price of really yeah. choosing myself and believing, believing have. that I belong. And I do, I walk in, you know, you this. Do. I walk into rooms and I'm it, it makes me even strangers sometimes. houses. I'm like, I belong here. You're like digging through their pantry. <laughs> <laughs> only Carrie Allen's, <laughs> only Carrie Allen's pantry. But just this idea that like, if you belong to yourself, then you belong do to belong everywhere. to everyone and everything. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It, 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 it couples with this idea of assuming intimacy yeah. with people. And so that really has been this question. It's like, if my life, and I guess I've never even said the question, but this question has been, if my life never changes from this moment forward, mm. is it okay? Yeah. And you know what? When I was honest with myself, the answer would always be no, it's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough. It's not enough. And so I then began to see that, oh my God, it's not enough because I'm not enough. So the work isn't about endless striving and creating something significant or doing something significant in the world. Now the work is all about building resilience around the shame that's led me to believe that I'm not enough. And that became my quest mm. that became, um, 
my main focus because mm-hmm. I knew that was what was actually the impediment for me to stepping into this sense of belonging con- yeah. and, con- and a deeper sense of connection to myself, which would just revolutionize my life. And so that led me to LA. Yeah. It's crazy. That question actually led me to LA where, uh, just a series of events happened and I found myself in LA. And honestly, the first year in LA, I would say the first four months in LA, it was just kind of like, Whoa, I'm in Los Angeles and it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but then after that, that question began to rise up in my heart because I was actually, I moved out to LA and I made three times, four times the amount of money that I've made since leaving the NFL, like yeah. my finances increase. And I really think it's, you know, attributed to me like being in flow because I didn't move to LA because I wanted to move to LA. I knew I moved, I had to move to LA because that's where I knew God was leading me. I knew that was what's next in my life. Yeah. And I was in flow. And so I came out to LA and then, uh, you know, four or five months in that question began to reemerge. And it's like, yeah, I'm doing LA well, will present that question know, to you. <laughs> I'm doing well financially. I'm loving life. It's amazing. I'm like just a couple of years ago, I was sleeping on the basement floor of a church. Like what the heck? Like, this is awesome. But I was still asked the question if it's, if my life never changes from this moment forward, is it enough? Mm. And I'm like, no, something's yeah. still missing. Yeah. And I remember that long story short, um, I found myself just in a week of just complete despair and frustration Mm. and being angry at God again and yelling at God. Yeah. And just like letting God have it and just doing so much work with, you know, finding the, the, the roots of the shame. And it led me to so much shame around my sexuality of growing up in evangelical Christianity of just thinking my body is intrinsically wrong. Like my body is just so flawed and broken and gross. Mm. And I've never been able to like really see that, but I, we can do a whole episode around the shame that we carry around our bodies and our sexuality. And it was so heavy for me. So, so heavy for me. And I remember when I got on the other side of it, of really doing a lot of work, there was just this one day where I just drove to Malibu and I was just crying the whole drive to Malibu. And I had this little side, not a beach, but like had a staircase you pull off on the side of the road and I would randomly found it and I'd walk down there uh, periodically to like read and write when I wanted to get away. And it was like 45 minutes up the PCH. And I just got there one day and I was just sitting there and it was like everything aligned in my life as I was just sitting there. And I remember just like, just started just hysterically crying, but it wasn't like a bad cry. It was just such a release. Mm. And for the first time in my life, I was like, oh my gosh, it's enough. Mm. I was just sitting there. And for the first time in my life, I was like, if my life never changes from this moment forward, it's finally enough. Mm. And it happened. I would call that an encounter with truth. It was, but you know what really happened for me? Mm. It was the first time. And this is why this is like revolutionized my life. It was the first time that I felt like I ever allowed myself to drop down and abide in the present moment Yeah, and actually be, just yeah. be. And yeah. I know that sounds so like kind of elusive and like, cause I've heard that language all the time. Right. Yeah. But it was like, wait, like, okay. Like practice the present, present moment, learning how to breathe and control my breath and like whatever. But for me, it was just like, whoa this is what I've been looking for my entire life. Mm. And it's just abiding in the present moment. But how can over time I started to think like, how can we abide in the present moment if shame is the driving force behind our life? Mm. Because shame is going to tell us that we're not enough. So we would never want to 
live in the present moment if deep down we believe that we're not enough. Mm -hmm. So we either live in the past regrets and we are an underachiever and we don't care to even try because why try? Or we're this overachiever and we're going to do, do, be more and achieve more in hopes that it's finally enough. But what we're really looking for, I would say, is just this radical acceptance of the here and now to abide in the present moment. And I feel like now, like even this idea of heaven and the kingdom of God, like it's like we are not saying straight corner prayers in Christianity so that one day we can get to the pearly gates of heaven. Like when Jesus even came, like the, the Lord's prayer is to advance the kingdom of God here and now on earth as it is in heaven. And I feel like the the clearest depiction of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven is living in the present moment. Mm. And it's learning how to live in the present moment. And it, I'm telling you, Kara, food tastes differently. Sunsets look differently. Flowers smell mm-hmm. differently. Normal, like the well, most, you're noticing. Your every encounter with a stranger was yeah. different. I was so in my body, like everything was just like amplified, like, whoa, like this is absolutely surreal. Mm. And the big thing was the food and flowers. Mm. I could smell like I've never smelled before. Yeah. And it was just my, it elevated my life experience infinitely. And, you know, I have a tattooed on my body now, June 3rd, like it's finally enough. And now the work for me has been, how do I stay connected to the present Mm. and to live from the present? Um, because I feel like that really is where the magic is and it takes a lot of work and a lot of discipline. So Mm. yeah, I have so much to say that, but like, what does it say about you? And the other one was, if my life never changes from this moment forward, is it okay? Yeah. And just willing to be honest with myself and saying, no, and allowing that holy frustration of trying to get to the point of it finally being enough, but never yeah. being able to reach it, led me down this place of radical surrendering into this place of radical acceptance where I found that, oh my gosh, it's finally enough because I actually now believe that I'm enough. Mm. It's so, so good. Yeah. Like those those are the questions. Those are the life defining questions. I like, of our how, lives. I like how we said we're just going to like record for like 30 minutes and I it's know. been 50, but it's all right. It's sorry. We're long winded. We've got yes. stories to tell. Um, <laughs> we are honestly so excited to bring all of you guys along on this journey with us. And we're actually like so curious about your questions too. So if you have them and you want to email them to us, yes. uh, you can email us at, you can email me at Kara <laughs> at Kara and Caleb.com. And just tell us, we'd be so curious to hear what your life defining questions have been and, um, would love to hear from you. Yes. And, uh, thank you so, so much for listening. And I'll say this, I think at at the end of every podcast, but I do hope that this has blessed you as much as it has blessed us. Um, and I said at the end of every Instagram post, I'm going to do it here too, but I honestly, all you listeners, uh, just can't thank you enough. And I will say that we love you all. We do. Um, and we are rooting for you and we honestly believe that we're in this together. So if there's anything that we can ever do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.